So I was already without like a formal intro for this sermon. So now who knows where we're going? We're in the Wild West now. Uh, so we're going to do all of Matthew chapter 23 today. It's one really big thought that Jesus has. And if you think about where we've been, so Jesus has been going in and out of Jerusalem for the last several days, interacting with different people on the Temple Mount, uh, different religious leaders, different people of importance, different, different groups of people who are, who are coming to Jesus for healing. All sorts of these things have been happening. Um, and Jesus is kind of had, last week we kind of had Jesus having his last showdown with all of his opponents, all of the religious elite people who were coming around and trying to silence his message. And this week, he's going to be speaking about those people, probably in front of those people, but really the target message that he's got is for his followers, is for his disciples and the people that are around him there. Um, we've talked about all the different audiences throughout Matthew that Jesus had, and he had his disciples, which are the people that are closely following him. He had the crowds who were kind of around them, who were with them following Jesus, but not necessarily fully bought in to the whole message that Jesus was having. They were there for the healing. They were there for the miracles. They were there to see the spectacle, but they weren't necessarily all in and pursuing Jesus. And then he had his opponents, all the religious leaders. Today, Jesus is going to say that he's going to turn and he's going to say to the crowds and to his disciples. So I want us to understand who it is that he's talking to when he's saying these things. Because he's going to offer several um, indictments against all of these religious leaders that he's been kind of going back and forth with that we've been studying over the last couple of weeks. And he's really going to kind of sum up all of what is wrong with the way things are at this point. Uh, and he's going to say this as a warning to all the people, look out for these things. This is what's really happening, right? He's fought it kind of one-on-one, -on -one, instance by instance, kind of, you know, statement and a response, statement and response through this whole thing. But now he's going to kind of say, let me just kind of give you a big picture look at all the things that are wrong here because I want you to get it. And it's going to end with this prayer that, man, I wish you guys all understood this. This is kind of where we're going today. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the chapter for us, and then we'll kind of go through some of these points. And I think there will be things in here where we're going to identify areas in our life that we're actually living more like Pharisees than we are living like the disciples ought to, the, the followers of Christ ought to be living. So let's go ahead and read in Matthew chapter 23. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and so observe whatever they tell you, but, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their, and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come so that you may so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all the things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think there's so much emotion in this from Jesus that... I hope that we can feel, I want us to be able to feel the weight that he's feeling in this moment, right? Because Jesus knows where this is headed. Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows what it is that he's walking toward. So when he's making all of these statements about you killing prophets and you slaying people who, you, you flogging people who come and who disagree with you, he knows that that is exactly what it is that he's walking toward. So it's a little bit prophetic in that sense where he's saying, I know what's coming for me and I know you're about to do all of this again. Even though you don't think that's all about you. You don't think that's who you are. I know what it is that's in your heart and I know where we're going with this. 
But I think we see this as he's turning and talking to the crowds. He's trying to give them this last appeal, this really, really strong, I want you to get this. I want you to understand what's really at stake here. I want you to understand where all of this teaching that you've sat under for so long has been wrong. And I don't even think he's fully saying it's completely, is he, I think he's almost in a sense is kind of comforting in that he's saying, you've been taught wrong. Let me help you understand this, right? It's not that he's saying, you guys have gone this wrong path. Yes, you are in sin. Yes, you are doing wrong things. But you've been led here by, by awful leaders who have really misinterpreted and really taken this in the wrong direction, really made this all about themselves. So let's go ahead and kind of look through a lot of these things that Jesus is talking about and just try to get a picture for what the actual state of the church was at this time that, that all of these people that Jesus has been trying to minister to for three years have been sitting under. The reason that Jesus is so strongly opposed to all of the Pharisees and all of these religious leaders is because most of these people that he's talking to and the most, most of the people he's been interacting with throughout his ministry are basically like the local church pastors that are all over the region, right? Like right now he's talking to all of them because everybody's gathered together in Jerusalem for the Passover. But, but these people, this crowd, these people that he's been interacting with are basically the local, the local religious leaders in each of the towns that, that these people would actually be going to on a weekly basis when they were going to the synagogue to be taught. So what Jesus is saying is, it's not just that one person has gotten this wrong. It's that because this whole group has gotten it wrong, they've kind of spread this, this, this misinterpretation of God's will throughout the whole nation because these are the people that are in your churches on a weekly basis. And I think this is why it's so important that we take things like eldership so 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 seriously. And it's why when we're talking about perhaps adding a new elder to the church or when we were first getting ready to start CRC, we spent most of our time making sure that the people who were going to be leading this church were, were qualified for it, were, were in a place where they believed the right things about Scripture, where they were in the place where, where they actually believed in who God is and they were willing to teach the gospel as it's represented in Scripture. They weren't going to take it and make it something about themselves. They weren't going to, to twist the words and, and mislead the group of people that we were planting this church to try to reach. At the very top, all of the leadership of the church was corrupt in Israel at this point. And that's the reason that everything was in the, in, in the situation that it was in. And that's why we have to take so seriously making sure that the people that we are submitting ourselves to are teaching us rightly. Even if it's not something that we necessarily like to hear. Right? Even if it's not something that, that makes us feel comfortable. Maybe it's something where, where we're being told we're doing something wrong and we have to be able to submit to it. That was a problem for all of the Pharisees, right? Because they're being told you're doing something wrong, but they're unwilling to submit to that teaching. They're kind of doubling down, being, remaining set in their ways. In fact, it says they're sitting down on the seat of Moses, right? This is the picture that he uses. Uh, and the seat of Moses actually from what I can tell, was actually like a physical thing. Like, they had a seat in the synagogue that was kind of the place where whoever was teaching would go sit down. Uh, I kind of found it ironic that they made a point that it was a seat, because if you think back to the original temple, there was no seat in the temple, because the idea was that the priest's work was never done. Uh, so, and, and I'm not saying that they were trying to go against the, the structure of the temple because they had a place to sit down while they were teaching. There are some weeks that I think it'd be awesome if I had a thing to sit down on while I was teaching because I get tired of standing because my legs get tired, right? But, but I think it's, it's this kind of, I'm going to sit down. I've done everything I can do 
to become righteous. This is kind of the, the way that the Pharisees had presented themselves all along anyways, right? Like, like, we've got this all figured out. You need to be more like us. And I think this idea of you sit on the seat of Moses, like you say, here's this, here's this groundwork that Moses laid for us. He gave us this law, right? Because when, when, when religious when the Jews, religious leaders, would think back about Moses, what they were really thinking about was, he's the guy who gave us the law. That's who Moses was to them. So when they're saying they're sitting on the seat of Moses, I kind of imagine them saying, everything that Moses has given us, we've taken care of, we got it, we're good, we're going to just sit here now and just tell you guys what to do. But what we know about the temple, and I kind of alluded to this a second ago, was that there was no seat, there was no chair, because the work of the priest was never done. They were always offering sacrifices. In fact, the, the, the first time that we really hear about completion and sitting down is when Jesus is going to finish this work that he's about to accomplish, and then he's going to ascend back to heaven, and it says he's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Because he's the only one who could actually finish this work. He's the only one who could actually accomplish everything. He's the only one who could take this, make it fully healed, fully completed. Only Jesus really gets to be the one to sit down and say, everything is done. I do think it's interesting, though, that when he's saying, he's warning the people about the Pharisees, he doesn't say, don't listen to the things they say. Right? Because it's as though he's saying some of the things that they're teaching are right. Like, look back here in verse 3. Uh, or, sorry, I'll start in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So he's saying they are teaching from the scripture the parts of that that are good, the parts of that that line up with what, what you're actually being commanded to. Do those things. But there are some things that they throw on top and do this and do this, right? We've talked about this before. Like, you had the law, and then they were protecting the law with all of these extra rules, all of this oral tradition that they had been passing down to try to protect themselves from actually breaking any of the laws. And what he's saying is, don't get tied up in all of those things. Don't do those things that they do. But the law that they're teaching, the core, the part that I actually gave you, do that. Even though they're corrupt, even though they're wicked, even though they're sinful, and I think that kind of reminds me of where we were last week when we were talking about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Like he was saying, Caesar, Caesar is taxing you, but I put Caesar in charge. So even though Caesar is an evil dictator, evil leader, we don't like him. I get that. If he's still taxing you, pay your taxes, right? Like, like still, still observe these things that, that you are actually called to do, even though you've got some corrupt leader above you. Jesus is saying the exact same thing about the Pharisees. Even though they may be asking you to do things that are wrong, the parts in there that are actually biblically based, even though they're the ones asking, don't throw it out just because they're evil, right? Listen to them. Obey those things because those are still part of my will for you. So I think that means that we, and I'm thinking of how, how, do, we, how would we interact with that, we need to learn to do a good job of, of studying Scripture for ourselves and, and being able to interpret what it is that we're being taught and being really discerning with, oh, this is exactly in Scripture, I'm going to do this, or this I have some questions about, or this maybe I don't think we need to be doing, this is something outside of that. And we need to be able to, to as the church, talk about those sorts of things. If you have a concern that, I think you might be teaching this wrong, I've had people ask me before, how are we supposed to deal with, like if I have a question about a sermon, like maybe I'm kind of confused on something you said, or maybe I disagree with something you said, come talk to us. I mean, if you want, if you, if you need help developing your thought, talk about it in your community group. And then, 
Ask your community group leader to help you answer that question. If they can't help, come talk to one of the elders. Like, that, that, that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's what we want. We want to have these kinds of conversations because we don't want to end up being Pharisees where we're giving you all sorts of extra things that aren't in Scripture for you to do. But at the same time, we want you to be able to pull out if there ever was something that we said that was incorrect, we want you to also be able to say, well, what's the truth in here that I do need to be applying? And there's lots of other places that we go for teaching and, and study, other books that we read, other, other podcasts that we listen to, other sources that we go to, and we need to be able to discern from those as well. Maybe I don't need all of this. Maybe not all of this information is helpful to me. But this thing, this truth, maybe that is something that I do need to change about myself, though I can disregard parts of this. There are lots of teachers out there that I can... I can tell you I don't agree with, but there are probably lots of things that they have taught that are actually biblically based and worth listening to. So I think it's worth us becoming more discerning, and I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Like, do the things that they tell you, listen to the things that they're teaching you from the scripture, but don't do all of those extra things. You've got to learn to figure out what things are biblical and what things aren't biblical for you. Still respecting them because they're still in a position of authority over you. And I think that's interesting because he doesn't actually condemn their, their practically applying the Bible, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that the oral tradition stuff is unhelpful. Like, I, I mean, we try to do that every week when we're teaching from the Bible, right? Where we're trying to say, here's some practical ways to apply this truth. Here's some things that you can do with this. Here's, I mean... I think back to every church camp I ever went to, right, where it's like you do this 30-day challenge where, hey, if you'll read the Bible for 30 days, it'll become a habit, and you'll read the Bible on and on and on and on after that, right? There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to read your Bible for 30 days every day to make it a habit. That's not biblical. But here's a practical way that you can apply this desire to read the Bible more that might help train you to do it. So it's not a bad thing to come up with things outside of Scripture that are going to help us know and love God more that's not a problem, but what he's warning them against is taking these things that they've put as safeguards or practical teachings or application of, of truth in the Bible, and they've elevated them to the same level as the gospel. They've made their oral tradition equal to scripture, and that's what he's warning them against. That's what he's saying, don't let this happen. Don't, don't, don't miss don't miss the actual text. Don't lose your faith in what God has actually handed us for the sake of your tradition. Because what happened is the greatest example that, that we get from the Pharisees is that of, of kind of missing this point is that they knew all of this Bible, yet they were so blinded when the Messiah, the thing that they had been studying their whole lives, actually showed up and was right in front of them. And they were unwilling to accept his coming and believe that it was actually him. Okay, this next section is hilarious to me. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Let's talk about what a phylactery is. It, 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 a phylactery came from Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, which is a verse that says, bind the word of God to your forehead and your wrist. Like basically, take the word of God with you wherever you're going. They took this so literally that they actually made little boxes, and in some cases, big boxes. And, and it's more hilarious if you go ahead and imagine it as this big, huge box. So just go ahead and let yourself imagine the most gargantuan thing. Right, yeah, you can't even keep your head up. Yeah, it's just weighing you down. 
And they would put tiny scrolls with verses in them, and they'd tie them on their foreheads so that they had literally bound the word of God to their forehead, and they walked around with it so it's like on the front of their mind all the time. Here's the thing that's hilarious to me. As I was studying, I found out, do you want to know what verse they tended to keep on the scroll that they put in the box on their forehead? They would put Deuteronomy 11.18 on the scroll in the box in their forehead, which that's the verse that just says, hey, bind the word of God to your forehead. They didn't even put something practically worth applying to them on their forehead. It's just that they would put, hey, there's a verse that says do this. Look, I did it. Inside is the verse that says I should be doing this. That isn't even helpful. That isn't even helpful. Like, like if you're going to put some verses on your forehead, I could even understand, hey, here's, the, here's something that I'm trying to apply from the law to my life that I'm struggling with. So I've got it right here, and I remember that that's the verse because I am really struggling with wanting to eat pig. Right? Maybe that's what they're struggling with, so they have that whole no bacon clause in there so that whenever they're getting ready to go, they see that pig. I'm going to eat that pig. As they're walking, they're like, nope, nope, verse there. That's what's helped. No, it's just the verse that said, wear a verse on your head, as they read it, that they put, which is, which is a, I think, a kind of a perfect example of just how confused they were and how to apply these sorts of things, just how, just how works-based they are. We're going to take it to the letter of the law. Bind the word of God to your forehead. Well, let's bind the word of God that says bind the word of God to our forehead. Not even helpful. And it says they, they make their tassels long. This was part of like a traditional, like, in a sense, pastor's outfit. Now, granted, we don't wear tassels so much. This makes you sad. I need more tassels. That's, that's true. We could find some tassels. But here's the thing. That was just part of the traditional outfit that they would be wearing as teachers of the word of God. And that was dictated to them by God. Here's how I want you to dress when you're performing your works in the temple, when you're performing all of your actions. This is the outfit that I want you to wear. And there was significance to it. It was representing something. The, the fact that they wore tassels was not the sin, right? This is where we have to be discerning and figuring out what is it that God actually wants from us and what is it that we're actually not supposed to do. The sin was that they made their tassels extra long, I want to make sure that you know I've got tassels and that I'm a religious person. Look, they drag seven feet behind me when I walk downtown. Right? I want you to know, oh, that's a religious person. Look, he's wearing that. He's wearing that thing. But I was thinking about this. We do the same thing, don't we? We wear certain things and to try to represent just how pious we are for something. Whether it's we wear our, our bright crimson Alabama t-shirt on the day that they're playing a game. Or we wear our Nike logos on our shoes to make sure that people know we're, we're running in Nike shoes. Right? For some of us, it's, it's we wear our suits and ties. Not so much in this church. I mean, Nick's wearing a vest. You look nice, Nick. He's like super reformed today. Beard and vest. <laughs> we're so proud of him. Sorry. That was really funny. I liked that. But this is a thing that we kind of do ourselves. We try to, we try to make sure, and, and, and sometimes I think we do it subconsciously because we've so made it a part of our routine. I'm going to dress this way. I'm going to do this thing so that this person will think this of me. 
Maybe we don't want to seem overly stiff and overly religious, so we intentionally dress down when we go to church so that people think, oh, that's a cool church. I can go to that one. Look, that guy's wearing jeans. It's just a different religious tradition, but we're still dressing in a certain way. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, because then like, we're going to end up in this vicious cycle. It's like, well, what can I wear? I'm not trying to say we only need to show up in burlap next week. But if anybody shows up in burlap next week, you are more holy than the rest of us. <laughs> that's a lie. Okay. But that's something to think about. Like, like we, we can just as easily fall into some of these traps that they fell into and not even realize that we've done it. We wear logos, we wear these certain colors, we wear these certain things when we go to different places because we're trying to represent this idea that I love this thing that I'm in more than you. We wear that t-shirt to that concert or this jersey to this game because I care more about it than you do. I'm more religious for this than you are. So then we get to these woes. And Jesus is going to give seven different woes. He's going to give seven different kind of indictments about them. He's kind of given us this broad, this broad picture of who the Pharisees are. And now we're going to kind of just rapid fire go through some of these and kind of get a couple pieces of truth from each one. The first thing that he says is, and this is picking up here in verse 13. Actually, real quick, I'm just going to jump back up to verse 8. One last thing. Because he talked about them taking on all of these titles on themselves. You're to be called, not to be called rabbi. You're not to be called this. You're not to be called that. He's not trying to say, if you have a job description like, we're, we're, we're elders here. He's not trying to say, you can take on no titles. But the word rabbi here, he's basically saying they were calling themselves master. I mean, there's a, there's a Padawan master Jedi reference I could make there. But I won't. But by saying that, you get it already. So... He's saying you're not to take on the idea of I'm the master. I've figured all this out. I'm done training, right? Think back to the seed of Moses, right? You're not supposed to sit down and say, I'm done. I've got it. Like, like followers of Jesus remain followers, disciples of Jesus. We don't get to become Jesus. We're not going to be Jesus while we're here. We're constantly becoming more and more like him, but we're always studying. We're always in training. We don't finish. Um, this was, okay, so I'll just go ahead and give this example. Because um, I used to do Taekwondo for a long time. Third degree black belt. So give me 15 minutes to stretch out and I can beat any of you up. Probably more like two hours to stretch out. And I still probably can't beat you all up anymore. But I used to take Taekwondo. And part of that came from this tradition of, of Korean culture where there's all this respect, lots of bowing. Very respectful cool with that. There came one point where one person that I was studying under, um, and this is not an indictment on people who are still taking Taekwondo, because take Taekwondo, whatever. But there came this point where you reach a certain rank and you get to become a master. You get to take on the title of master. And there's this whole ceremony you go through and there's this whole preparation that you go under for like a week where you like fast for a whole week. And then at the end, you like do these full bows where you're like laying down on your face in front of all of these other masters who've come before you. And once you go through all of these sorts of things, you get this title of master and you get to call yourself master. And it started to take this. It was, it was not the only reason that I stopped taking Taekwondo. 
because I really like taking Taekwondo. I really like doing the things that I got to do. I like teaching classes. I loved all of that. But parts of it started to feel a little bit too religious to me, a little bit too, you're in this, you're under me, you are my disciple. But I wasn't studying to be more like Christ. I was studying to be more like a human. And I, when I got out of that, I realized just how religious that thing had become to me and some of us. And it, I realized that that was part of why I think I was being made uncomfortable while I was there and why it was time for me to go. Because I realized I'm treating this person, this human, almost like they are, they are the being that I'm supposed to become like, other than Jesus. And we, as believers, never become a master. Followers of Christ always remain his disciples, because we have not been perfected yet. He has not come back for us, taken us out of this broken place, made everything new, and given us new bodies where we can actually be perfect and live in perfect unity with him and with the rest of creation. So Jesus isn't saying don't call somebody father. Jesus isn't saying don't call somebody dad. We're not talking about human relationships here. He's talking about this idea of giving yourself this title that makes, puts you in a place like God. We don't get to do that. We don't get to make those calls. We don't get to put ourselves in that position. And then at the very end in verse 12 of that section, he says to them, he gives them that last reminder Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's, that's a word to his disciples. Remember this, servant leadership. You are going to lead, but you are not going to lead from a position of, I am the deity, I am in charge. No, this is going to be you serving people and loving them and showing them how to become more like me. Because Jesus is the object of our affection. All right, so now let's get into these woes. And I want us to realize that these woes, like when you hear the word woe to you, like you're, we immediately think judgment, and that's part of it. But it's more than just judgment. It's almost, it's like a sense of regret and sorrow and compassion. Like there's more emotions tied up in what Jesus is saying here than just, you're in trouble, you're going to hell. I mean, he says that, so that's part of it. But that's not the whole thing. I want us to connect with the emotion of what he's saying here. He's broken over the fact that this is the state that his people are in. And he wants them to get it. But he also wants to tell them exactly what's in store for them because of the way that they are. So the first woe. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. So it's not just that they don't get it, but because they have so skewed what the gospel is, because they have so misinterpreted what the people are supposed to be doing with the law, because they've so made it about their oral tradition and the works that they're using to get into God's favor, because they've so done that, they've actually put up a roadblock between people actually getting to and understanding who God is and how they are to relate to him. Right? I kind of thought like of like the Matrix where like all these people are walking around plugged into this system and they, they don't realize that they've got it all wrong, 
right? And there's these other people who are trying to keep them locked in and keep them from getting unplugged and understanding what's truly going on around them. Right? This is kind of the situation in which Israel is finding itself because its leaders are so wrong that now they're blocking them. They're trying to, it's almost as though they're keeping them. They're fighting against them getting into heaven. And he says, in a sense, their judgment is doubled because not only are, not only are you in sin, but now they are so far gone because they're submitting to your wrong teaching. And now they're keeping people out because they're telling people, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. Right? It was just kind of this vicious cycle that they were in. In fact, it said, you're working so hard, you'll go out and you will go three counties over trying to find somebody to make them a new convert. Which he's not saying is a bad thing, by the way. He's not saying to go out and try to win converts is a bad thing. But he's saying, you're winning them to a false brand of, of religion, of, of following God. So, so you're putting in all of this effort, and when, when you finally win somebody, what have you won them to other than just death and their own judgment? It's way, way worse. So they're blinding other people. They're going out and they're basically saying, oh, hey, there's the truth. No, don't look at that. Don't look at that. Look over here at us. We've got the real way. We've got, we've got the actual solution here. And it was causing them to basically double down on their own guilt. Because they were in it, but now they're pulling people further and further away from it. Which, again, every time I see these sorts of things, uh, I think is a good reminder for like me and Dad and Caleb. Like, this is why it's so important that we try to teach this as accurately as we possibly can. Because part of our role as elders is that we got to make sure we're teaching this right for your sake. Because, because how well you take these things that we're teaching, how well the gospel resonates within you is going to be something that we have to give an account to God for. And this is Jesus saying, you're giving an account to God because you were left in charge here. And because you screwed this whole thing up, it's on you too. It's a pretty, pretty major warning. And then he talks about all of these oaths and things, picking up in verse 16 that they were doing. And, and what they were doing is they were basically saying, well, if you say... Uh, I swear by the temple to do this, that they weren't held to it, but it was the gold in the temple. So if you said that, yeah, yeah, then you're bound to your oath, which is, which is um, hilarious because in, back in Matthew 5, if you, if you can think back to like 17 years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5, he, he even said, you worry with all of these oaths and things, but man, just say what you mean and do what you say you're going to do. Right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't get so bound by, did I say this oath in the right way that I'm bound to it, or can I get out from under this thing that I said? Because remember, the whole teaching that Jesus had had the whole time was, don't say you're going to do something unless you intend to do it. And then if you say you intend to do it, follow through. Like, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. That's what it looks like to actually understand the meaning behind this law. But, but the Pharisees had taken so many, so many specific little details in the way you say things to build this argument. Now, here's how you know whether or not you're bound by the oath you said. And what Jesus says is, even in misunderstanding the why you would need to give an oath, you've gotten it wrong, right? Because he's saying, you swear by the gold in the temple when it's the temple that makes the gold worth anything. Or you swear by the sacrifices on the altar when really it's the altar that makes anything that you put in front of the altar matter, right? Even in their being incorrect, they got it even more incorrect because they were so focused on the minute details that they kept missing the big picture, 
which is the exact same thing that they were dealing with in that next section where he's talking about you're tithing on your mint and your dill and your cumin, right? He's not saying don't tithe, right? We talked about that last week when we were talking about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God what's God's, right? He's not saying don't tithe. What he's saying is you are so locked in on these tiny little pieces of the law that you're going to get those right that you miss the big picture, which is like showing mercy and fighting for justice for those who can't fight for justice, and loving people and showing them the truth of who I am. That's your real purpose here, right? The real reason that I made you my people was so that you could win the nations to me. But no, you're more busy making sure, oh man, I, I got three flowers today. I got to figure out how to break three flowers into one-tenth so that I can get rid of one-tenth of these three flowers. And then he says, you strain the gnat out of your drink, but you swallow a whole camel. I love that picture. I love it when Jesus uses camels as a, as a hyperbolic. Hyperbolic? Example? Did I say that correctly? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, because it's just so obvious what he's trying to say. Because, yes, it would have been unclean to drink a gnat. Because they had wings. Can't eat things with wings. No flying insects. Okay. Fine. So they strain the gnat out, which, which seems like, has anybody ever, like, had a drink of something and then realized afterwards, I think there was a bug in that sip, and it's too late. And then you're just like, I guess it's done. I guess I'm just dead. Right? Maybe some of you? No? Okay. That's just me. Uh, but he's saying, you, you spend so much effort trying to make sure, look through your drink, oh, there might be a gnat in there, let's get that out that on a camel, which was also an unclean animal, you're so busy doing that, you're like sitting here, is there a gnat in there while you're like cutting up camel and just shoveling huge bites of camel into your mouth while you're trying to, this is, can you imagine trying to eat a whole camel? No? Okay. It's hilarious. But it seems so ridiculous, right? And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. It is ridiculous that you would that you would sit there and focus on this teeny tiny little thing and miss the big thing that's actually corrupting you. You're missing the big point. And that's what we talked about last week too, right? You're so, you're so zoomed in, you're so laser focused on these small pieces that don't matter that you forget to step back and take a big look at what God is trying to do here, what God is trying to accomplish. You're missing the big picture there. They are so micromanaging the small portions of the law and we do this too. We all have that issue that we are willing to lock in on and say, no, we got to get that one right. But we miss the whole, I'm going to love you and show you the gospel, and then we'll deal with that detail later. We try to fix people's morals before we try to, we try to make sure that they have a heart that even understands who God is to fully understand what a moral is. Right? We do this. We do this ourselves. Which, which, which immediately leads us into Jesus' next example. Like, you wash the outside of the cup. You make sure your cup looks pretty so that people are impressed with the cup that you're drinking out of. But inside, it's filthy, right? I think of like an old coffee cup that has like, that had creamer and stuff in it. And it's been sitting there for like six days, right? And you look, go back and look at it. I'm going to make this really detailed. And like all the creamer has like separated and it's like chunky, and now when you pour it out, there's like a thick layer of like separated 
curdled creamer on top of your thing. And when you try to pour it in the sink, it comes out in a glob and smacks down in the bottom of the sink, followed by all of the coffee. Have we all experienced this kind of thing? Like, that's nasty, right? You just go ahead and finish it, right? This is basically what he's saying. That's the kind of cup you guys are drinking out of, full of just all kinds of old, rotten nastiness, but the outside looks great, so people think that everything that you're drinking in there has got to be good. Right? He's saying, if you wash the inside of the cup, have you ever, maybe we should all try this this week. Get a cup really dirty, and then go wash just the inside of the cup without washing the outside of the cup. The outside of the cup has to remain equally as dirty as it was when it started. He's saying, if you're washing your cup, it's going to end up all clean. It's all going, like, what's, the effort put in on the inside is going to be reflected in its outward appearance as well. So he's saying, if you get your insides fixed, if you get your heart seeking after me, if you're looking for the right things, if you're fully understanding what the purpose of the law is, then... By the time you, those things start to take root in you, outside is going to start to look like you're following me too. It's going to start to look like you're pursuing me as well. Which is the exact same thing he's saying right there at the end. You're whitewashed tombs. Inside you are dead. You are full of death. I thought it was interesting because I was reading, why, why, why is this a thing? And it's like they would kind of go paint outsides of tombs white so that you wouldn't accidentally bump it with your arm and become unclean for seven days because you touched a tomb. Like, that's kind of the origin of this. But what he's saying is, you're not even just painting a tomb for the sake of marking it so that people will know, I shouldn't touch that, it's a tomb. You're like painting it up, making it look all nice. You're trying to make it look all pretty and not representative of what's actually inside, which is just dead people's bones. That's all it is. It's just an inside filled with death. And that's who you are. Yeah, you're wearing these really nice robes and you got these really, really extra long tassels. And you got this really, really awesome box tied on your forehead. And it looks amazing, by the way. You guys look so good. Except that on the inside you're full of death. And your heart's not beating for me. You don't get who I am. You don't understand why you're supposed to be here anyways. But people think you got it because you look good. And maybe that's something else that we can do sometimes as well. We can make sure our outsides look good. Like the example, whenever, if you grew up in church, I'm sure you heard this at one point, where somebody's talking about how whole family's arguing on the way to church, all the way there, yell, 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 yell. Moment you put the car in park and open the door, everybody gets out, hi, happy Sunday, glad to see you guys, right? We do that. We do that. We hide how we actually feel about things. We, we disguise what our actual emotion is, not even just when we go to church, but maybe just sometimes when we're hanging out with people, you know, right? We've, you, you've heard this before. It's like, how you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. You're not fine. Right? If you're fine, say you're fine. But, but we so don't think I should be honest about it. Like, we get to a community group on Wednesday night. Let's do prayer requests. What do you want to pray about? Well, I cut my knuckle today. Pray that my knuckle gets better. Or, well, my, I don't know. We come up with a lot, not all of us. I'm not trying to say this is an indictment of everybody, but... It's really easy to say, here are a couple of kind of surface level things that I would love for you to pray about. My favorite one was always traveling mercies. Who has ever said the phrase traveling mercies? No one wants to admit it. Andy will. Right? But it's like, I'm traveling. Pray for my trip. 
Not saying that you can't pray for somebody to have a safe drive somewhere. That's not the point. But if that's all of all, all our prayer requests get to in our community groups, if that's the, the only level of connection we get because we're so like, I'm doing great, but these, these things here, sure. Like, we're only letting each other in this far, like an inch deep past the surface. We need to be willing to be open and real and say how we truly are. Like, if we're inside filled with death, we don't need to be filling, like hiding it behind this whitewashed, beautiful exterior. Look, I'm great. Everything's fine. He's saying, know who you really are. Like, that's the real struggle is that the Pharisees thought they were good. And he's saying, no, you're dead. And maybe it's not that we're all dead inside. Maybe we're all saved. But it might be that we don't really let people in to understand where we're hurting or where we're still broken or where we're weak or where we need to be built back up or where we're in sin and we need somebody to come along and kick us in the butt and say, stop it. Stop it. I don't know what it is, but stop it. The Pharisees didn't view themselves as agents of death. They looked back fondly upon their whole tradition. Look at where we came from. Look, we're even building monuments to celebrate the great prophets who came before us. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not the ones who are friends with the prophets. You're the ones who killed the prophets. And you know what? You're about to kill another one. Here I am. Because I disagree with you. Because I'm, because I'm pushing back against your tradition. You're about to do it again. And he, tur- and he turns to the crowd and he basically says, and you know what? It's going to keep happening. If you keep following me, it's not going to just get better. You're still going to be fighting against this kind of thing for the rest of your life. And that's true. Because as soon as Jesus left the church in charge, that's as soon as the martyrdom started. That's as soon as the pushback started. And it hasn't stopped since. You sign up, you come on with the church, you know what you're getting. It's not happy and easy and joyful the rest of the time. We can be joyful, we can be happy, but it's by no means going to be easy and smooth sailing the rest of the way. Because he says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town. And then he uses from Cain to Zechariah, like basically the whole Old Testament. From murder number one in the Old Testament to murder number whatever at the end of the Old Testament. This is how you've been, and this is how it's going to continue to be. Yes, it's prophetic in the sense that he's saying, in like two days you're going to kill me. But that prophecy kind of keeps going beyond that. It's going to keep happening because you're going to continue to think that you are righteous. You're going to continue to think that you have it all figured out. And we, as the church, need to realize what it is that we are in for when this happens and be excited that we get to share in that same suffering that Jesus suffered in for our sake. And then we get this kind of final closing where Jesus kind of looks to Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem. And by Jerusalem, he really means all of my people. Because Jerusalem, capital city, is kind of representative of all of Israel here in his mind. And he's sad that his nation has so missed the point of their calling, why they were made a nation. And he says, all of this is going to be taken away from you. Yeah, he's probably talking specifically about the temple's going to get destroyed in like 40 years. And all of this is going to be gone. You're going to get scattered around the world. But even more so, kind of like we've seen him saying along the way, he's saying, you were the center of this whole thing. And now I'm moving on. 
because you guys have so missed it. We're going to the nations. We're going to the Gentiles. We're going to take this message everywhere else to the ends of the earth like it was always intended to, but because you guys have so missed the boat, we're moving on. You're losing this power, this authority, those keys to the kingdom of heaven that he talked about however many chapters ago. Like, I'm taking those keys back, and I'm giving them to the church, and the church is going to go to the nations. And so I find myself asking, I mean, present day, how are we doing with this, right? He moved on from them because they so thought they had it figured out while inside they were still dead. And is that us? Are we still, are we a people that, that think we've got it all figured out, that we're really, we're really religious, and we really do all these things, we represent our team really well, we make ourselves look all happy and healed and perfect and all of this, but inside we're not accomplishing anything because we're just dead? Or are we so filled with this love of Christ that he's put within us and we understand that it's not because we did all of the things that the Pharisees were doing. It's not because we have earned this, but it's because he has done everything that it needed to happen. He gets to sit down because he did all that work. And now it's left to us to kind of become more like him, follow him, chase after him, and as a result, hopefully go out and, and, and win more people to him because we show love, we show mercy, and we're not so bogged down in kind of the minutia of figuring out all these little details about I got to make sure that I represent myself perfectly here, 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 here. Those things will come. If we clean out what's inside, if we have a heart that's actually after Jesus, that external stuff kind of follows it naturally. That's what he's saying. So we got to figure out what's wrong with us on the inside. we got to realize that there's nothing that we can do to fix that and beg Jesus to fix us. So let's do that. Let's pray.